So why don't we stand and we'll read this final section of Isaiah 37, beginning in verse 21, and see how God deals with Sennacherib. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and within the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? From ancient times that I formed it, now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place, your going out and your coming in, and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, <clears throat> the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way shall he return. And he shall not come into the city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, so whatever his name is, the king of Assyria departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezir struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Asaradon, his son, reigned in his place. Well, Father, we thank you that though nations may rage, Nations may do their own thing, or so they think, but nothing goes outside of the boundaries of what you have ordained, what you fashioned, as you say in the text. And I pray that you would use some of these things to encourage us, especially as we see the insanity of nations around us, and ours included. But Lord, ultimately, you are in control of all things. And our lives are included in that. 
So we thank you. And uh, yeah, so just be with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So we left off last week with that Rob Shaka. He was this diplomat of King Ahasuerus. No, Sennacherib. Ahasuerus is another king. I'm reading in our devotions about another king at our family. So delete that from your mind. He was a diplomat for King Sennacherib, but he wasn't very diplomatic, was he? Right? He was just nasty. And we remember that he was drawn away from the city because uh, Sennacherib had then gone into battle with the Egyptians. So he went to, we don't know exactly, but uh, while that was happening there on the southwestern front, uh, he sent the Rabshakeh back to Jerusalem, essentially to further threaten and mock Yahweh. But this time it came in the form of a letter from the king himself. And then the letter was sent to Hezekiah. And after he received this letter, he read it. And then he went to the temple and he laid it out before the Lord. And uh, <clears throat> he began to pray in response to the letter that God would guard the honor of his own name and that he would protect Jerusalem. And um, so Hezekiah at this point, of course, is desperate because the army of Assyria dwarfs his army. Uh, they're just no match. And the Assyrians at this point, they can either assault the city and take it or what they can do is they can just wait it out because the resources within the walls of the city will eventually fail, and all that the, the Jerusalem will have is water, which is a lot uh, in a, a fortified city like that, but you can only survive so long on water. And then eventually, uh, the city would just surrender, or everybody would die. Either way, Jerusalem at this point is all but conquered. <clears throat> and then, without Hezekiah, uh, this time, even sending word to Isaiah, Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah. Very nice. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's look at it. So then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, and notice the language here, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I think that is important. Because you prayed, uh, the text is saying that because Hezekiah prayed, uh, the implication is that if he had not prayed, God wouldn't have responded. How many times does God not intervene because we did not pray? Of course, I think it's impossible to answer, <clears throat> but the reason we don't know is because we didn't pray, right? Uh, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, when the Lord appeared to Solomon after the, the temple was dedicated, he says, if my people, and of course, many Americans are familiar with this passage and they misapply it to us, but it's, it's for the Jews. But he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will. So if then, I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. So God said that he would hear them, forgive them, and heal them, their land, if they humbled themselves and prayed. The, the implication is that he would not hear, he would not forgive and heal if they failed to pray in humility. 
So in both instances, and, and there's more in scripture, there's a clear condition on which God would act on the behalf of his people. He says there, if my people pray, and to Hezekiah he says, because you prayed. I think it's important for us to understand that in some situations that God has ordained to act on our behalf when we pray. And he's ordained not to act if we do not pray. It's, it's conditional. Um, it's not that God doesn't want to act on our behalf. It's that he wants us to be humble. He wants us to show dependence upon him in certain situations. He wants us to cry out to him. And the best way to see if there is a condition upon which God will intervene is to go to him and be humble and pray over circumstances, finances, relationships, opportunities for healing, for us, for others. Whatever it is, we should take it to the Lord in prayer and just see what his will is. We should be praying all of the time. Have you guys heard that before? First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. <clears throat> Uh, I think Paul said that because he believes that our lives should be lived in, you know, constant communication with the Lord, which then indicates a life that is dependent upon the Lord, okay? I'm sure there are a host of things in, in my life, in your life, that God has ordained to do on our behalf, but because we do not seek him in prayer, those things are just left undone, just undone. We should be trusting the Lord to do things we cannot affect on our own. And our trust, I believe, is demonstrated through prayer. So Hezekiah, through prayer, he discovered that God would intervene on his behalf. And from Isaiah, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. He says, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Speaking of uh, Sennacherib, the people of Jerusalem have, have mocked uh, him. Now, in the narrative, we have no record of that. It's not there. Not of them despising him, laughing at him, or just kind of, you know, shaking their head at uh, how pathetic he is or whatever. Now, Isaiah the prophet, and the prophets do this a lot, is they speak in what A.T. Robertson calls the prophetic present. So he looks into the future of what will happen and then states it as if it is happening. So he would say the prophetic present regarding what Judah will do, what, what they will do after God deals with the army uh, of Assyria. Now currently, the major cities of, Jeru of Judah, uh, the province that Jerusalem is, is in, they have fallen. And Jerusalem is under siege by the most powerful army in all of the world. So I think taunting and mocking Sennacherib was probably not what they were doing at this moment, okay? What do you think they were doing at this moment? I mean, think about it. There's, there's over 200,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem, and the king and everybody inside the wall are trembling. I don't think they're mocking at this point, okay? I don't think that's happening. But later, when they retreat... I think they will. So I think that Isaiah is speaking of what is actually going to happen. He's speaking in the prophetic present. I think currently Jerusalem is trembling. And then God says, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And he's speaking uh, to Sennacherib. 
Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of of defense. Now the real problem uh, wasn't the mocking of Hezekiah and his relatively small army. I mean, you remember the Rabshakeh said, if I send, give you all these horses, he says, you don't have enough men to put on them. Okay. And he says, one of my lieutenants could take just you know, multitudes of your soldiers. So he's, he's been mocking Hezekiah. He's been mocking the armies. But that's really not the point. Okay. Sennacherib, through the Rabshakeh, he mocked the Holy One of Israel. He was boasting against the Lord. And it seems that the Lord takes that personal. And the Lord is saying to him, well, well, didn't you hear long ago how I made it? From ancient times that I formed it, now I have brought it to pass, that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. He's saying that way before, you know, any of these events transpired between Assyria and the nations that it had conquered, the Lord had planned it all out. It, it was me. It was my idea. These were my plans. And then at the right time, I brought all of it to pass. God is saying, I raised you up to do my bidding. And, and in the tone there is, who do you think you are? This is my doing. I raised you up. And of course, Assyria, under the circumstances, gladly did what they did. But then, because it was all orchestrated by God, their success was guaranteed. Listen to what he says. Therefore, <clears throat> their inhabitants, that's the nations that you conquered, they had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and, and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it's grown. Because I orchestrated all of these offense, the nations Assyria came against, he says, they were just powerless to resist them. They were defenseless. They were wicked and deserving of judgment, but they had no chance because this was my hand in all of this. You see, Assyria did not have the success they had because of their own might. It was purely because God ordained it. And nothing can thwart what God ordains, nothing. So Assyria owed all of their success to Yahweh, the God that they are now mocking. That's not, that's not cool. He says, but I know your dwelling place, you're going out and you're coming in, and your rage against me. So instead of Assyria, you know, recognizing the source of their success, they turned on Yahweh, they blasphemed him to the Judeans. Now, it's interesting how the Rabshakeh, you remember, he, he mocked Judah and said that Yahweh had told the king of Assyria to go up against this land and destroy it, chapter 36, verse 10. But then in 37, verse 10, he said, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he said that Yahweh could not defend them. First, he said, Yahweh has called us down here. And then he says, listen, don't, don't be so foolish as to trust in Yahweh. He can't stop what we're about to do. So the Lord, Yahweh, was being mocked by the one he gave success to. 
And so God responds, because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. So all of their boasting, it's going to come to nothing, okay? They boasted that the people of Jerusalem, uh, the Rabshakeh said, they're going to eat and drink their own waste, chapter 36, verse 12. And for this arrogance, God promised that the Assyrians, he will turn them back. But here, it's funny, he doesn't yet mention how he's going to do it. He just says, I'm going to turn you back, okay? And uh, there's no mention of, of why or how. And then the Lord here, he then turns and he speaks again to the people of Jerusalem. He says, this shall be a sign to you. He says, you should eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same. Also, in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So verse 30 begins with, this is a sign to you. That's, it's a sign of God's intervention, his favor. And he says, like crops that yield produce, Israel will be reestablished. Okay? Now, the idea here is, you know, a, a normal uh, stock of wheat uh, doesn't grow one wheat berry, does it? I hope not. They grow a head of berries. One normal uh, grapevine doesn't produce one grape. At least mine don't. Except last season, my Rainier cherries, it was devastating. But that's not a normal year. And it wasn't the starling's fault. There was just something wrong with the season. Usually I get 15 gallons of Rainier cherries. But that's not a part of our story. That's part of my sad story. So, yeah. So God is saying the small remnant that has remained after the conquest of Assyria is going to be like these crops. Okay, so at that time, the people of Judah were few. I mean, the, the Assyrians had annihilated many people. But he says by the third year, the remnant would be thriving. So God would grant his favor to them and, and they would be restored. And I love that Isaiah, he says, the zeal of the Lord will see to it. He will make this happen. Yeah. The prophecy of Isaiah 9 concerning Messiah, he says the same thing. It's like a, a, a seal. It's like a guarantee. This will happen. This will happen. Just as he fashioned all the conquests of Assyria, he set the limits on their success and then turned them back to their own country. He will grant success to Judah. And he turns his attention back to Assyria. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. So God says, I'm going to turn him back, and there's not even going to be a fight. Not so much as an arrow will be shot over the wall of the city. Okay? They'll make no advance on Jerusalem. And so the farthest they got was a little bit of trash talk. That's, that's the limit, the extent of their assault on Jerusalem. He says, for I will defend the city. Save it, from my own, save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, I think it's important at this point to try to think of the, the setting, the historical context. 
So well over 200,000 soldiers surround the city. Imagine being in that particular context. You've laid the letter out before the Lord. Isaiah comes to you, and he gives you this promise. How do you feel? Really, how do you feel? See, hope and everything else has failed. They can see those armies, hundreds of thousands of them, and we look at the resources within the city, and we look at how, what the population of the city is. We calculate how much time we have. You know, all of these factors that you would take in, the, the horror of bloodshed, of all of those things. We, we might be tempted to say that Hezekiah found instant relief because of the promise. But the text doesn't say that, does it? He just received the promise. Now, I think that he certainly should experience relief of all his fears because we know that God cannot lie. He always keeps his promises. But the truth is God has given us a multitude of promises in Christ Jesus, hasn't he? Do we live at all times with a sense of relief, mm. believing that God is going to come through? I don't think we do. But I think we should. I think we should. I think that we, in spite of his promises, experience anxiety. We shouldn't, but we do, even though we have no record of God's failure ever, ever, just as he didn't fail concerning his promise here to defend the city. And it says that he would spare the city for his own sake and, and then David's for David's sake. That's interesting. David's been dead for quite some time now. Yeah. So first, God would defend it for his own sake because he's promised. Now he has to, right? He has to follow through with his word. He did it for David's sake also, and I would say he has been doing it for David's sake also, at least for as long as he can reasonably do it. I think that's important because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, isn't it? Just not by the Assyrians. Well, because of David, uh, God didn't want the city destroyed and the people scattered by this particular pe people group or by the Syrians because there's problems with that. You see, because of the way the Assyrians dealt with conquered nations, there would have been no way to keep track of David's lineage, which is imperative, right? It's imperative if God were to keep his promise to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. You see, the Jews, we know, they kept meticulous records of their genealogies. But because the Assyrians destroyed the identities of the people they conquered, those records would have been lost. Yeah. Now, God would later allow the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, and they took many of the Jews captive, some as slaves, some as, as workers in the, uh, the citadel and the king's court. But what the Babylonians didn't do is they didn't erase people's identity. Now, they would try to erase some of those that worked within the king's court, okay, like they tried to do with Daniel and his companions, but the Babylonians left the religion of the Jews intact. They left it there. I mean, minus destroying the temple. But we have evidence even of this in the scriptures. Ezra was a scribe who lived through the captivity, and he kept meticulous records of things. Most scholars believe that he wrote First and Second Chronicles. That's a, a record. The book of Nehemiah and Esther demonstrate that the Jews maintain their identities in Babylon. Nehemiah even worked for King Artaxerxes. He was the, the chief cupbearer, and yet he was still lived as a faithful Jew in that context. The Jews maintain their identities in the Babylonian Empire all the way through to the Persian Empire, 
And you remember it was, it was Cyrus's edict of toleration that let all the people groups that had been conquered originally by the Babylonians to have their religion as they desired it. So it was preserved. So God didn't let Jerusalem, where the genealogies of David were kept, be destroyed by the Syrians or the Assyrians, who just annihilated cultures. But instead he had it done by the Babylonians to where those things could be preserved. Very interesting, huh? You think that's providence? <laughs> so God spared Jude and Jerusalem until the Babylonians. But how's he spare them? Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people rose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. This is probably the most anticlimactic verse in all the Bible. The angel of the Lord went out and slaughtered 185,000 people. Next verse. It's, it's amazing. Now, this is interesting because typically God uses people, sometimes nature, as the instrument by which he accomplishes things. Okay, he used his people to purge Canaan. He used the Assyrians to uh, decimate nations. Okay, he used the Syrians for that. He even says that in uh, the beginning of Isaiah. He says, you were like, uh, what does he say? You're like an axe in my hand. I was just using you, okay? But it seems that because Sennacherib boasted that Yahweh was helpless against him, just as the gods of other nations were, God decided to intervene directly to contradict that notion. When God intervenes hands-on, he seems to be very serious. So the angel of the Lord goes out and just slaughters all these Soldiers, that is a ton, a ton of people. That's more than all of Lewis County. Lewis County has about 85,000 people, and this was 185,000 people. So real quick, what is the identity of the angel of the Lord? Of course, it means messenger of Yahweh, angel of the Lord. Um, but who is this particular individual? Now, uh, most scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Most scholars believe that. He's often identified as Yahweh, okay? Genesis 16, 13. And then there's other places where he's somewhat distinct from Yahweh, as in Zechariah 1, 12. But then when we take all of the verses of the angel of the Lord and we cram them together, it's really difficult to avoid assigning him or, or identifying him as one of the, the persons of the Trinity. And by a process of elimination, it cannot be the Father. You see, because the Father does not execute the will of the Son. We never find that in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to take on a role like this until the book of Acts when he judges Ananias and Sapphira. There, there are tons of reasons throughout the Old Testament to identify the angel of the Lord as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. One that, uh, for one reason, that I think is interesting. The angel of the Lord is all over the pages of the Old Testament. But then, once we get to the New Testament, he vanishes. Why? I think it's because he came in the flesh. Okay? Uh, some uh, seem to object to this being Christ in this particular story because he slaughtered the Assyrians. Well, yeah. I don't understand why that's an argument. It's, it's nothing compared to what he will do when he returns or what he did at the flood and what he did at Sodom and Gomorrah. 
I don't get it. He is just and he has the authority, the prerogative to judge the wicked. Okay? So I don't know of a good reason to object uh, to this being Christ pre-incarnate. Uh, it's well within his character. Uh, he, as you know, when we read the book of Revelation, uh, he gets very personal when people start messing with his people. And uh, he's zealous for his name. Um, yeah, it doesn't bug me a bit. Be that as it may, when the living woke up the following morning, imagine 185,000 dead men. You know, nothing communicates bad omen to a host of pagans like 185,000 of your comrades dead in a single night. This, this, would, this could only be viewed by them as a plague that would be attributed to a local deity. And their dignitary has been mocking him day in and day out. That's what they're thinking. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. So just as God promised, the Assyrians went home, returning the way that they came. And uh, I don't imagine that these superstitious people stuck around to tend to their dead. I think they tucked tail and they got out of there with a sense of doom and dread upon them, okay? Uh, the message was clear. They were not welcome there. It was time to leave, and I, I'm sure they did quickly. Now, we know from the narrative that uh, Sennacherib was not there. He was doing battle in the southwest, but when the report got to him that in a single night he lost that many soldiers, uh, I think that he probably put two and two together. The local deity, Yahweh, we have offended by mocking him. Okay, nothing else could explain that. So he swallowed his pride, he grabbed his toys, and he went home. But the Lord wasn't done with this blasphemer. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adramalek and Sherezir, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, whatever, his son reigned in his place. Now, this actually happened 20 years later. 20 years later. Uh, Sennacherib had returned from some other thing of conquest back to his own land, and then he fell by the sword, just as God said that he would, 37, verse 7. Now, it is ironic, perhaps, that when Sennacherib was in Judea, he said that the God of Judea could not protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem from him, but he did. And then when Sennacherib was in the very presence of his own God, Nisroch could not protect him from Yahweh. Yeah. The Lord didn't just judge the king of Assyria. He judged the God of Assyria. You remember when Moses was preparing to go into Egypt, God said, I'm not just going to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I'm going to judge their gods. I'm going to make a complete mockery of them. And I'm going to prove that it's just me. It's just me. Yep, he fell by the sword. How sad, jeez, to be judged by God for your own arrogance. And then following his assassination, his son, Esaradan, took his place. He reigned from 681 to 668 B.C. Now, it's interesting, Assyria continued to be a, uh, just kind of maintain power in the region. And they actually spread its dominion until it was the largest empire 
uh, by that time. No, no empire was larger than Assyria before this. They revolutionized uh, empire building. But what happened, the more they grew, uh, the more difficult the kingdom was to manage. And so rebellions throughout the empire, what, they would rise up all over the place and it would spread the armies out too thin so they couldn't subdue all of this. And in 609 BC, they fell to the Babylonians and the Medes. And then out of this victory arose the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Does anybody know the name of that king? Not Nebuchadnezzar, but his dad. It's Nabal. Uh, Nabopolazar or something. So he then ascended the throne of Babylon, which then even grew the empire bigger than the Assyrians did. And then it's his son, Nebuchadnezzar, that appears in the pages of scripture all over the place, from 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, of course, uh, famously in the book of Daniel. And, uh, and so you just see this interesting uh, way that God is directing the empires. And that's spoken of in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But we have this interesting, uh, there's a ton of them in the book of Daniel, especially in the narrative sections. Listen to this. When it comes to the rise and fall of nations, the ascending of kings and their fall, Daniel says this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises them up, Daniel 2, 20 through 21. And then to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, you, O king, are a king of kings. And, and, and what he's saying there is, uh, as we've looked at the, the way that the kings were, how much power they had in their various kingdoms, so like uh, Babylon, and then Persia, Greece, Rome, and so forth. Uh, when we look at, how much power the individual king had, Nebuchadnezzar had all power. And then when we get to the Medo-Persians, there was a little less power in uh, Darius and the rest of their kings. And then we get to Greece, there was a little less power in the Romans and powers spread further and further out. But Nebuchadnezzar just, when he was done with something, he was done. He just made all decisions, final decisions, everything. So he's the king of kings except for the fact, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields and the birds of the, of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them. He appointed to mankind the most powerful man, but he still is the one who did it, okay? Daniel 2.37. And then, you know, following the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, We know that in his pride, he was all caught up in himself. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, that's the Lord, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4, 35. There's many, many more in the book of Daniel. So the point is here, you know, God stood the, the Assyrian empire on its feet and then he knocked it down. And he did it without breaking a sweat. And he did it, and then immediately after, he, ra- he rose up a mightier kingdom. And then he knocked them down. And then when we look in the book of Daniel, we have uh, Daniel chapter 2, and the Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the multi-metallic statue. And God not only knows in advance the order of world empires, he's the one that puts them in their place 
and then brings him low. And the scriptures say that he will do this until, as he says in Daniel 7, he hands the kingdom over to his son and he will establish a kingdom that can never be overthrown. So we talk about the promises of God and I think that it's important that we talk about his promises in relationship to his sovereignty. Sovereignty just means control. If we really believe that God is in control and we believe that he is good on his word, we know that nothing can stop him from fulfilling his word. We know that his nature guarantees that he will fulfill his word. And I think that's the only reason that scripture says that we should be anxious for nothing because it should all be based upon the nature and the character of God to fulfill his promises. Amen? If he can raise up nations and destroy them, we should have no anxiety about what he's doing in our lives or with our country. Amen? Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. Next week, we'll look at Hezekiah's folly. And it's sad, but he's just like us. Father, we thank you that you do whatever you please in the kingdoms of men. And I thank you that what, what pleases you is good, that you want less evil in the world, that you want good to prevail, but the world is filled with evil. I thank you that you can take even evil and do good with it. But Lord, when it comes to us trusting you and your promises, even when the enemy surrounds us, Lord, I pray that you would use the circumstances of our life to increase our faith, help us to trust you and your your promises, all of which are yes and amen in Christ. And Lord, that we would walk in belief, not just for our own sake, but for our, our families, our church, and Lord, as the world watches on. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.